0: Their membership consists of utah's outdoor manufacturers retailers outfitters and guides member benefits include networking opportunities recruitment of talent and brand promotion more information about volunteering and membership is available at utahoutdoor.org on this episode of our history of gear series we talk with marilyn moss former ceo of moss tents She talks about building and running a responsible company and the legacy of famed tent designer and fabric artist, Bill Moss. All right. Welcome back, everyone. This is Chase. And joining me today, Marilyn Moss, the former CEO and president of Moss Tents, author, um, a a pilot. I that's new. I didn't know that. Um, and very active in, in her community. Um, thanks for joining me. We've, we've been wanting to do this for a long time and I'm, I'm glad that we can finally make it work.
1: It's a pleasure to be here.
0: The, the weather, um, wasn't, wasn't our friend these last few, few months, um, trying to, to organize this and put this together. You're, you're in Maine right now. Um, but I'm, I'm glad that we could, uh, navigate, navigate outages and, and, uh, harsh weather and, and have this conversation.
1: Yes. And a surgery or two
0: and a surgery or two. Yeah. You've, there's, there's been a lot going on. Uh, so I appreciate you just being willing to take the time. I, I think this work is so important and, and I've just really been looking forward to talking to you for oh, it's probably coming up on a year now. It feels like, um, and uh, you know, you you were kind enough to send me the book that you wrote about the history of of Moss Tents and and Bill Moss. Um, and I've I've been devouring that over the last few few uh, months of and have really enjoyed that and have been looking forward to this conversation. So thanks again for making the time.
2: Thank you.
0: Um, well, I I wanted to just dive in and kind of take a look back at at the origins of Moss Tents, this company that you led, um, and. And, and Bill Moss, um, the, the designer behind it all, um, and, and your partnership in creating this, this brand. Um, but I, you know, maybe taking a step back, I, I wanted to talk a little bit about why tents for you. Um, what is it about tents that, you know, that, um, maybe caught your attention? I, was that something that you ever thought you would be involved in, um, prior to getting into this business? What, what are your thoughts there?
1: No, not at all. Uh, you know, I was quite young and I was studying at school uh, at the University of Michigan when I met Bill. And I had done some minor classes and work in studies in art as well. And uh, I got a job with him as his receptionist, bookkeeper, and uh, started working for him. And then I was introduced to tents. But my pers- personal uh time with tenses i did a lot of camping uh but after and with a nice moss tent (laughs) it was much more comfortable than the kind of camping that was going on prior to that for sure
0: what Uh, what was camping like in those days like what what was the state of kind of the tent space and and what year are we talking about
1: uh we're talking in let's see mid-60s okay In the 60s, and uh, Bill had designed the pop tent. So at that time, I just used that. And and I eventually, when we did lighter weight tents, got lighter weight tents and that. But I did a lot of winter camping. In fact, after Bill and I were even separated, I would go off to be alone from the business up uh, to Acadia here in Maine in the winter.
0: Mm.
1: and camp out alone out on a point. In the ocean.
0: Wow. So, well, did did you? I guess prior to meeting Bill, were were you much of an outdoors person? Did you spend time doing outdoor activities, or is that something that you discovered through through working with Bill and, and getting yeah. into t- to tents? Yeah, you
1: know, primarily working with Bill. I was brought up on a farm, so I mm-hmm. was out working a lot, and and, uh, and I was brought up my grandparents, and it was a. There were in a lot of. In the mountains of West Virginia mm. and, and uh, so hunting and fishing were the primary things at that time, and the only thing we could probably afford anyway
0: mm. well it 's interesting, I think we see this a lot more now as that definition of the outdoor industry is is so broad right, and sometimes you we think of outdoor as camping right, but outdoor includes can include like farming and it certainly includes fishing and hunting and Um, there's definitely a big workwear component to the, the industry, you know, companies like Carhartt are kind of outdoor companies. Right. So um, that's interesting. Your exposure to the outdoors, you know, being coming from, from that, um, that, that pathway, I guess, Um, you know, and and Bill was, Bill was in, well, born in Detroit. Is that right? So it's 1923. and, And you describe a lot of this in your book. And so, I, you know, we, we could spend a few hours recapping the entire book, which we won't do, but, um, I mean, this, uh, you've pieced together this to to, to make it right. Um, so I would recommend anyone pick up, pick up the book on your website and we'll link to that as well to, for the full history, but, um, maybe to, to give an idea of just, I guess the circumstances that he was growing up in for listeners to understand um his influences um he was always interested in design right, but not I think a lot of people at that time didn't realize that product design was an option right he He went more of the kind of going more the art architecture route is that right
1: yeah he was uh he was a painter because- I explained and started out painting for the Ford Times and a very good painter. I mean, they have a collection still, I think of over 300 and some of his paintings that were used for covers of the Ford Times magazine. And um, he then uh, uh went, when he went to Cranbrook, he was very influenced by Saarinen and Ings. And of course they were, in the design world. Mm-hmm. And I think that a lot of his thinking was very influenced by them uh, at the beginning, even though he went his own way and he was started designing with fabric instead of plastics and, and, uh, and paper instead of wood or uh, something else, some other material.
2: Yeah.
0: Right. It's, it's kind of interesting. um I think that that era, like post World War II into the 50s and 60s, is is like defined by in in terms of product design. There's the rise of like industrial designers, right, and the Eames chair, and um, kind of this. Uh, just I'm not I'm not using the right terms to describe the era, but but kind of the rise of industrial design at that time and product design and a, a, a renewed focus on 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 product um, that way. I imagine he kind of took those influences, but went a, a different way entirely, kind of blending art and architecture, and and kind of created this new path, to, you know, as a tent designer, um which I think is really interesting because at the times, at, at the time, I mean, largely tent design was the A-frame, right? You've been using the same tent tent design for. For you know, decades at this point, um, back to the Civil War, right? You've you've got the same A-frame style tent, the same shape. Um, so it took so that, some outside. Oh, so go ahead.
1: It's uh, and that's exactly what caused it because he would go fishing and duck hunting and oh. and camping with his buddies, and they hated these hard to put up tents and smelly tents. And he said, you know, he just wished he could stay in a nice motel somewhere instead of in a tent. And that was when he started thinking about designing something that was more pleasant to be. in. And the he had designed it, then he said he brought his art off the wall. But he didn't actually bring his art off the wall as a form of sculpture until he designed the tent.
0: The right. Bottom. Well, that, that, that's the interesting thing about tents. And I, I've become really fascinated by them. And I think part of it is reading your book and describing tents in, in this way, right? Bill, well, was it bill that described himself as a fabric artist. Yes. Did he well, coin that term or.
1: I did that. Okay. You do the book. Yeah.
0: Right. Well, that's the interesting thing I, I feel like about tents is like you said, it's sculpture that you can interact with. Right. It's, it's, oh, okay. um, it's architecture and product design. Um, it's, it's interactive art in some, in, in some ways. Um, which is is really unique and and which makes tent design I, I imagine really hard for people to break into, those who are in tent tent design today, because it's um it's a shelter in addition to a, a piece of gear. Um so I, I don't know if you have thoughts on that. I mean, you you worked in this business, you ran a successful company, um Imagine you found a lot of challenges in, in running a, a tent company. Um, there's probably a lot of barriers to entry into breaking into the tent market because of those unique challenges. Such a unique product.
1: Oh yeah, I, you know when Bill really designed the first dome-shaped tent, mm-hmm. and uh, even see Era Designs, and I can't think of his name right now. Who was the designer? Can you remember? Uh, in
2: fact,
1: lives. Oh. I think he's still alive. Uh, darn, I can't think of his name. Anyway, he claimed he did the first Dome Tent, but finally he admitted, uh, <laughs> and I think it was outside magazine, that Bill Moss really did the first Dome Tent right. another others copied it. But yeah, it was hard because uh, for one thing, here I was a, being a woman mm-hmm. uh, going to these rep shows with these colorful lightweight far out looking designs. And people were saying, wait a minute, you're not North Face. Who are you? And just sort of ignoring me. And it, it took a long time. I had to convince dealers that just put one of my tents, just put one in your dealership, the old puppy dog trick, you know, mm-hmm. and you don't have to pay for it. <laughs> and Then if you do sell it, I'll send you another one. Yeah. And uh, it worked you know, because people started really loving the the artistic and the, the beauty of being in them and the, you know, that the stargazer with the screen on the top that you could lie there on a nice night and look at the stars. And, you know, those were important things.
0: Well, there, I mean, Moss really brought I don't just kind of a new element to, to camping. Right. It's like, it didn't have, to, like you said, it didn't have to be this smelly, um, dirty necessarily experience. It could be inspiring. Like why, if you're going to spend a night in some kind of a structure, it might as well be something that you enjoy looking at and that's inspiring. And, um, I, that's kind of my thought when I look at at the products is they're just, you can just tell there was a lot of thought that went into them. Um, and, I mean, they're just, I, you know, I, I imagine that helped for the marketing, for marketing purposes, right? To have a Bill Moss tent photographed against a beautiful vista, the tents themselves are just beautiful on their own. And then in such picturesque landscapes, um, they're inspiring um, in a lot of ways. And I imagine a lot of people, that's what resonates with them is kind of this sense of wonder in this, this structure that was created that they can interact with and, and uh, you know, sleep in.
1: Well, that's true. And that those were our first customers, you know, who maybe were going out for the first time camping or whatever, and they went in nice weather. They didn't climb a mountain and they didn't go into a, a canyon or something. Uh, they went to campgrounds and uh, surprised everyone with how quickly they could put up their tent, mm. That part of that. But then when we started trying to sell into the specialty stores, like alongside North Face era designs and um, JanSport, uh, those mountaineers and campers kept saying, "Wait a minute, this tent doesn't really function. Mm. This is not. This is beautiful, but it's not. It's not meant for severe weather." And so that's when I really came in because that wasn't Bill's. That wasn't Bill's forte, you know, that wasn't mm. what he did. So in production, uh, I had to try to incorporate some of these ideas that were used by um, these other tent manufacturers to really make four-season tents. And we, what I did was I would loan them to various climbers and have them take at least one on their way of where and wherever they were climbing to test it and then they'd come back and give us feedback well you need a stronger grommet here you need uh, mm. more reinforcements you need this you need that and you need a vestibule and these were things that we weren't familiar with neither bill nor i and so we had to learn the hard way
0: yeah what were some of those challenges i I had some conversations with some of the early tent designers at the North Face recently, and when they were designing the the geodesic tent that required you know flexible poles with easton and I'm sure you encountered these challenges as well In fact, um, we were the first tent company with easton you were that- really okay which tent was that and what what year was that
1: and that was with the pop tent when okay. We- you know, it kept getting different generations of, of design and improving upon it. And uh, it was no longer called the pop tent and it didn't pop up. But when Bill was looking for alternatives to fiberglass rods,
2: hmm.
1: he went to Easton and because they were producing only arrow shafts. Right. And he said, well, what I want is, is an aluminum, lightweight pole that I can put shock cords through and be able to collapse and have it put together. So that he really was the one who taught Easton how to have those frames.
0: Do you happen to know what year that, that would have been? I guess the year the pop tent came out probably.
1: Well, no, no, it was much later. Uh, oh, okay. I, this is when we were really manufacturing here in Maine. So it had to be in the 70s, okay. the early 70s.
0: Okay. Yeah. Because the oval intention, the geodesic came out in 75 or 76. So yeah. that must have been then. Yeah. The, the conversations yeah. that I had with the tent designers at the North Face, it was pretty interesting. They they said that they, they worked with Easton as well. And and um, some of those early poles in the display models in in some of the stores, they just broke under the stress, right? In those early iterations of the poles, because this was, this was new, right? You all were pioneering, um, you know, using these materials for, for tent design. And, um, I, they, they had a few mishaps and they had to go back and, and work with Easton to re-engineer the, the poles. And, uh, did you have any mis, missteps like that, um, along the way that were, were notable that, that you just thought, oh, we're, we we will not recover from this, but, but you did.
1: No, I would never say that.
0: <laughs> we would it was all smooth, we smooth go. sailing, right?
1: It was all learn as you go. Sure. I mean, just in terms for me, for running a manufacturing company and and uh, never had any business experience. Uh, I had to learn as I went, and also we did in making the tents, and our team really worked hard at. Uh, getting correct materials and really going with uh, trying to produce uh, a fire retardant that um, didn't make the tent stick to itself every time you put it in a bag. And these were all constant issues uh, in manufacturing. We didn't come up out with the perfect tent, I don't think, until probably in the late, Seventies
0: mm. you know, so when when did you i guess officially start with working with with Bill just for context
1: uh
0: that was in sixty one okay,
1: you know, and again, I was just supposed to be a receptionist and bookkeeper, and of course, I lied and said I was a bookkeeper. I felt <laughs> how hard can it be i can keep, I can balance my checkbook. <laughs> <laughs>
0: And and what what I guess what were some of the because Moss Tents is 75, right? Is that that's when Moss Tent Works, I guess, is officially founded. Yes. Under that but, name.
1: Yes. We were uh designing and producing tents and selling them in Ann Arbor, but they were being made by um Eureka.
0: Okay, yeah.
1: And that was where the family tent, the Eve tent. And of course, the hyperbolic parabola for the pair wing; um, those were the ones that were being made there. Right. And then it was not until we moved to Maine in in early 70, 71, Well, I came up in sixty nine, but and so we decided to start manufacturing instead of trying to be just a design company for other manufacturers.
0: Right, and- because Eureka was the big the big manufacturer. I mean, they had been around since the. I mean. The 1800s, like oh, yeah. I mean, they they've been around for a long time making tents, so they were kind of the big one. Um, I guess the long-standing company, right?
1: Yep, and we sold our tents in Ann Arbor just before we left. Uh, direct, direct mail mm. to individuals. It's-
0: Sp- speak speak to the de- direct mail um, side of things. I we we I, I talked with a an outdoor gear historian recently, and we we kind of documented the history of a lot of the key early companies. So Jerry Holubar, you know some of those companies, and direct mail was the thing, right? Like we, you look at direct to consumer now, and you know connecting with. Um, potential customers online. Um, it's very similar to this idea of having a mailing list, right. And sending your catalog directly to the customer. How important was that for, for you all in the early days? And how did you even build a mailing list in those days? Like, how did, how did you find people to, um, to, to send your, your product to?
1: Well, we ran some ads. I remember running ads in sports magazines Mm. Even Sports Illustrated and I don't know if Backpacker was then. I think it was. and Yeah. And outside, maybe. Um, and we'd run a little ad that I could afford. And then we'd sell a brochure. And then they'd order it. And then we'd pack it up and send it out. But meanwhile, Eureka was making them. So all we were is just passing them passing them through. Right. But those weren't the high-end uh, tents that they were beautiful designs and they were unique and different and people loved them. In fact, I'm getting mail now from uh, the Moss Tentworks website of people who will say, I still have one of the old uh, family tents. Do you remember that? The Eve family tent and we use it and my family uses it and my brother's family use it. And that was back in the sixties.
0: Wow. <laughs> well, that that's the interesting thing about the tents made during that time is people have an attachment to them, um, and it seems like there's 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 a market of people out there who maybe they grew up and they slept in one of them as a kid, and now mm-hmm. they have the money that they could actually go go buy their own and they want to go find these tents. And so eBay, there's there's a big market for old tents on oh, on eBay. And people are always trying to track them down. So yes, and they stand the test of time. I I mean th- this is in a there's a more regional company, but spring bar tents was kind of the, the Utah based tent manufacturer that had been around since the forties. Um, and I remember sleeping in a canvas spring bar tent as a kid. Um, and so I have this attachment to, to that, that brand and, um, you know, I, I was able to see my parents, um, you, know, uh, you know, well, long, long time ago, pre-pandemic, um, but be able to set up those tents and kind of relive those memories. You, A lot of it comes back to you when you go inside one of those tents, those, those memories come back. So it seems there's kind of a resurgence of people who want to find those, those tents and, and they're still, they're still quality. They're still holding up and still, still function just great. It seems like.
1: It's incredible. Uh, uh, The memories I have of the Moss family tent, uh, the E family tent, it was called Moss E family tent, was we would take our two kids winter camping and one of them was still in diapers. And Mm -hmm. I decided I did not like that part of it, (laughs) too much in the snow and the cold weather conditions. But there are wonderful memories of being in that tent. Um, have to have one
0: right um i so i'm gonna go back a little bit again but back to i guess kind of the i guess the outsider nature of the work that that bill was doing i don't know if you kind of categorize him that way but the outdoor industry i feel like is traditionally you have these outdoor enthusiasts who can't come in and um you know obviously this this comes you know are in similar time periods. Right. But the uh, Chenards, right. They're making product for themselves. They're ingrained in that kind of an activity and they're just making product to solve the problems that they're finding as they're, as they're doing their activities. Right. And then you have other people um, like a uh, uh, Jack Stevenson, right. Mm-hmm. Who's this aerospace engineer who comes in with, with this training and background and understanding of materials and, um, aerodynamics and, and brings that into the outdoor industry through his tent designs. And I see that is a very similar story to someone like, like Bill with the art background and that focus on, on art and design, bringing that into the outdoor industry that is traditionally so focused on function. And you found a way to marry both of those, right. With the pop tent and making tents that could perform, but also look really beautiful um, what thoughts do you have on that? This kind of outsider nature—you know, people coming and bringing inspiration from from architecture, from aerospace, from these other industries, material innovation, and bringing it in and making an innovative product like some of the Moss Tens.
1: I think any any kind of interaction, again, like music and writing and art, the same. You integrate in as much as you can to produce creativity mm-hmm. and the way I look at the tents that we did and then not just the tents but the outdoor sculptures and the the um, canopies and the large tents they were beautiful pieces of sculpture that functioned and that's just integrating and integrating leads to different kinds of things bill always said there's not a straight line in nature and i don't want one in many of my designs and for the most part he didn't except right. he was working with uh, foam core
0: right right i i asked you a little bit off off uh, camera about people like bob gillis and if you had interactions with some of those other early tent designers um that, did you have connections with, with someone like a Jack Stevenson who was also in this tent space and trying to innovate and, you know, create, you know, n- not trying to create more straight line tent designs, but introduced more of the, the curved, you know, elliptical arch, I guess is the name of, of his yeah. tent. But did you have interactions with people like like Jack?
1: Jack, as a matter of fact, because he came over from New Hampshire with his tent idea and wanting to see if there was some way that he and Bill could work together. Hmm. But, and I don't know why it didn't work. I can't, I, don't, I either don't remember or don't want to remember. I don't know, <laughs> but I, I know that they just didn't work together. Right. And maybe they just had two different ideas. And
0: Right. Right. Well, I figured, I mean, you're both operating in that same region. Maybe that's where I got it confused because, because Jack was in New Hampshire. Is that right? Yes. Okay. Yeah. That's right. That's right.
1: I don't even, uh, is he still alive?
0: I don't know? think so. I don't think so. Um, I think, um, I think some of his family still has the company. So warm light is still around, Oh, it is. it's It's in Colorado. Um, and I think, I, I'm not sure if it's his kids, um, that are a part of the company or running the company now, but it's still within the family in, in some way. So, um, yeah, that was a company I wasn't really familiar with until I really started to dig into the this history. Um
1: Yeah, he didn't sell too many tents not then.
0: Right, right. Well, and and my big takeaway for, from him was this idea of bringing, you know, innovation from other from other industries into the outdoor industry. And I I saw that as a parallel to to you and Bill and the work that you were doing. Um I guess in terms of other inspirations for, for you and Bill, um, I know Bill was always looking at the art world um, and architecture. Um, you know, who, who were some of those influences or you know, things that inspired him and in his work? Yeah, you know, certainly nature, right? Wanting to, to create product that you know, would, would fit in a little more seamlessly with, with the shapes that you find in nature. But were there any other inspirations that really stood out in, in the creation of these products?
1: Yes, he had, uh, beside his drawing board in his studio, which went with him everywhere, wherever we moved, uh, a book on Corbusier. Do you know his work? No, I don't. Okay. He was an Italian uh, designer, uh, architect, but he used pre-stressed concrete, but he created these beautiful parabolas. Mm. It's very handsome, you know, shapes and double curve things, and Bill was very influenced by the look of that, but he said, well, you know, I'm going to just do it with fabric, that's all. You know, he got the uh, the patent on the para um, just a piece that looked like a, a handkerchief that he took down to Washington, but it was cur- cut with curves before it was sewn so that it formed this hyperbolic parabola. And the same year that he got that patent, Fry Otto in Germany got the same patent mm. on a hyperbolic parabola, which you're probably aware.
0: Of. Well, I, I had Fry Otto on my list here of of potential influences or contemporaries, so I'm glad that you mentioned uh, their work. Um, this idea of
1: Frey Otto went big, right? And Bill stayed pretty
0: small and personal and intimate, right? Um, you kind of along these lines, um, tension fabric technology is a, a phrase that maybe was that what you, again, I want to clarify my terms. Is that something you coined or is that a bill term? Bill term. Okay. That sounds <laughs> that, like a bill term.
1: Yes. <laughs> and, uh, yeah, it was used in this patent,
0: right? That's the pair wing. That was part of the pair wing yeah. patent, right? Yeah. Uh, that's another idea that has come up when I've talked with, um, those involved in the oval intention um, tent from the North face is they took a lot of inspiration from Buckminster Fuller. Again, this idea of like a, some, a, an outside expert influencing, you know, design in the outdoor industry. And, and I know they, the, the, the term that they used was tensegrity. That's right? right. And that was kind of the term that I guess that was a Buckminster Fuller term that they. And
1: in the series of triangles.
0: Mm-hmm. and.
1: and and Bill didn't like that. He, he was very critical of, of Buckminster. He said, you don't need that much framework. He said, less is more. That was always his, his
0: mantra. Oh, that's interesting. This is really interesting for me because I've been I've been bouncing between these two competing ideas, yeah. um, and having these conversations. And I don't know which one is is right. I don't know if there is a right, but I think they're
1: both um, right. It's 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 just the interesting of a different way of these two. I don't know if we can call them both geniuses or not, but <laughs> <laughs> the way they, they thought. And Bill was always less is more. He was always trying to use less framework on everything, whether it was big or not. And he was not an engineer. And a lot of the young men that worked for him who had maybe had a little engineering or something were always skeptical mm. that it was going to work. And it didn't always.
0: <laughs> right. Right. Well, that's why I'm ask, I ask a little bit about the missteps, right? Was there anything big that he was trying to to do that just didn't pan out? Um, were there any failures that were notable to you in products that he was trying to create or anything like that?
1: Well, in the the paper, um, the failure there was that you know people have a preconceived idea of what paper is naturally, mm-hmm. and when it was ever mentioned. Uh, that such-and-such was made out of paper, it was met with disbelief. So marketing anything of his paper stuff was almost impossible. He took – we had a little uh, – not a trimaran. What's the other one? The 2 hull.
2: Oh, I don't know.
1: (laughs) Oh, a two-hole boat, not trimaran. But anyway, it was a sailboat. Okay. It was made out of foam core. Okay. And fold it up, go under your arm, your pole was here, your sail was fabric, everything.
2: Mm. Just
1: put it under your two arms. I sailed it on the Huron River in wow. And so did his kids. And he took it to New York to um Schwartz. Uh this toy store
0: A- fao schwartz
1: fao schwartz thank you see i told you this mind is not <laughs> as quick as he used to um and he talked to the buyer there in this big office and he bill set up the tent and showed it to him and this guy with the cigar and lots of gold jewelry <laughs> on said to him well mr moss that's very cute that's very cute indeed but what good Jewish mother is gonna let her kid go on a paper boat on the water and <laughs> <laughs> didn't buy it, even though it worked. It was and that was what Bill was always doing. You had a paper house. Who wants to, you know, I can't live in a and it's round? Yeah. I and mean, how can you live in a round house? How do you put furniture in it? So the there were market failures, not so much product failures. And the only product failure he had, because everything was made out of paper. All my kids' toys were made out of paper. All the furniture was made out of paper. We had a furniture couch. It was paper and on. And he kept trying to make a paper fireplace. Mm. And it kept burning
0: up. Yeah. <laughs> so he, Go figure.
1: <laughs> So it never worked. It never yep. worked. But boy, he didn't give up. He did a paper sauna, and we had oh, that.
0: But really? That wow. There. Well, what what motivated the paper? Um, I guess what what drove that? What was some of the inspiration for for making paper products like that?
1: Less, more.
0: Right. You right. Know,
1: using ease of use. Not not, not uh, uh, the the integrity isn't there in the in the material. But how you use it and how you cut it and how you design it builds the integrity. In I,
0: th- I think it's still a really interesting idea. And it's one of those that, like you said, market failure, right? I, I can see paper furniture, paper toys, like some of that just screams Ikea to me, uh-huh, you know, yeah. like, it, it, like some of that I could see, you know, um, really taking hold today.
2: Today. Right. Like some of yes. these ideas.
0: Right. Um, and so maybe it was ahead of its time and we weren't ready for it, but um, I think, I think that is a really interesting um, piece of, of the story. Right. Um, that I, I, I don't know how many people know that chapter in, in the moss tent history is kind of these paper products, but they're really interesting and really beautiful to look at too.
1: Well, that was the, that's really the interesting part of Bill that he wasn't, he wasn't a tent, a, he really wasn't a tent designer. Right. He was a designer that was just constantly creative in thinking of some way to make something else that no one else had made. Right. <laughs> he was very successful at it, but as a manufacturing company, I had to learn to say no to him because you can't go into all these markets without, I mean, PepsiCo might be able to, but they have, had a little bigger budget than we did <laughs> introducing a a new market people didn't know and weren't familiar with even the kind of material it was so it was really hard because he was still an artist he 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 just had to keep creating
0: what what challenges did that present for you as the president ceo of a company um i mean you ultimately have to have to deliver um, on the product and and you know make money and keep people employed and um you know was were there were there instances where some of this seemed like it was out of left field and wasn't a good fit and you had to put your foot down and say we we can't do that or what what challenges did you face what you were kind of put in an interesting situation where you you probably had to have those conversations.
1: Yeah, exactly, the one you just said. I had to finally learn how to say no. And I was just excited about, you know, I was a young woman, and and I loved his creativity, and I loved all of this arctic genius. But trying to market and trying to make the company profitable was really difficult because he just kept coming up with stuff. And it was, you know, a garden product, uh, a backyard product, a pool part product, a beach product, uh, this, you know, that. And uh, I think that's why. In fact, I know that's why he finally left the company mm. because he was being stifled and in creativity as an artist. And he he wasn't interested in the details. He wasn't interested in talking about how do we take this fabulous idea and market it and, and, or, or first even manufacture it and mm. then market it. He wasn't interested in that, you know, right. You, you figure that out. <laughs> yeah.
0: But it seems like throughout his career, yeah. he probably had to swing between artist and product designer a lot. And, yes. you know, the pendulum at that point swung more towards, I just, I really want to pursue the art. Right. Yeah. Um, but that's really interesting. What year would that have been when he left the company? He in, uh, 82,
1: I think, 82,
0: 83. Okay. And that was and just to uh, go pursue. To oh, okay. And, and that was, was
1: to, to pursue other ideas and take them to market or do whatever he wanted to do right. with them. And, uh, you know, we separated with the company owned the, uh, the products that had been already done mm-hmm. and, uh, You know, we offered as a company to buy anything that he wanted to offer that, you know, if we felt it was marketable, making tents. As hard as we tried, we couldn't because to get the quality and keep the quality, and at the same year I was trying so hard and had the losses, North Face, Sierra Designs, all of them went overseas, Mm. manufacturing. And there'd be a product sitting down in L.L. Bean that was $200 less than sitting by a moss tent Mm -hmm. and a two-person tent. And you just couldn't, we couldn't do it. And so that's when I sold the tent part of the business in 1994. In fact, that was the year Bill died. Uh, He was in Arizona at that time. And I sold the tent portion, the camping tents, to REI. And uh, they bought the logo for the tents, and I kept the exhibit part of the company, which Mm -hmm. was another division I had started using the tension fabric technology and taking it into the exhibit and trade show world, which again, revolutionized it. Now there are a lot of fabric manufacturers.
0: Well, I I look at some like tension fabric in, in structures and in, in some of these, um, you know, trade shows, um, one in particular that stands out, it's like the the Denver airport, right. It kind of has that tension fabric tent design. And I don't know if that was, that was, uh, I'm sure, well, that was definitely can trace back to you all, um, whether you, you know, the company worked on that one or not. I think the airport was built after that, but, um, that influence is certainly there. Um, which I think is interesting, these different markets that you were serving, you touched on a few of them, the different types of products that were being created, but but the exhibit side of the business, um, I mean, it was enough that you were able to spin off the tent side and just focus on exhibits. That's really interesting.
1: Yeah, and we made we made profit on, on the exhibit market because no one, it was a niche market. Right. No one was there. Right. And, uh, it, it turned our company around.
0: Well, the challenge that I I... Feel like I have this conversation with with a lot of people who are in the gear space, but especially those who make really high quality products. Someone buys a, a moss tent, and they don't. You don't have repeat customers, right? They don't necessarily need to come get a new one because you made it right the first time. Um, these aren't disposable tents, unless you're you know buying paper tents or paper products. But um, I think that's the interesting challenge that a lot of gear companies face, and we're seeing that even today. A lot of the the companies that are focused on the gear, you know, a Black Diamond, for example, makes really good gear. So someone doesn't need to buy a new climbing harness every, you know, every year, um, but they do need to buy a new jacket every, you know, every couple of years potentially. And so you see more of these companies who are getting into the apparel space because that's just something that people buy more of. So I think that's interesting. It's a similar story that we kind of see um, every company kind of face that that challenge and have this reckoning of. Oh, we just make good stuff, so people aren't coming back to us. So it's interesting that you were able to find a market that was better suited um, and and more sustainable.
1: You know who actually got me started in it was JanSport because mm. was a sporting goods show that was held in um, Chicago. I can't remember what year this was, uh, and I went out there to set up all the tents and get my booth set up, which Bill had designed out of fabric so the whole booth was just fabric like putting up a giant tent background and the Jansport boys (laughs) were across still opening crates Mm. and with a six pack of beer and I was in high heels and I had my exhibit up in Probably 15 or 20 minutes and they were still two days working on setting theirs up because their exhibit booth was made out of wood Wow wood and plastic and had to be screwed and had to be nailed and and all of this and and I forget one of the salesmen came to me and he said, "My God Marilyn, you should get into making exhibits." <laughs>
0: <laughs> Little did they know <laughs>
1: So that gave me the idea.
0: That's great. Uh, well, I mean, to that point, and you—you you kind of outlined some of this in in some previous writings. But I mean, eventually, the company had fourteen million dollars in revenue and one hundred and sixty plus employees. Fifteen,
1: fifteen million.
0: Okay, I want to get that number right. Um, and over one hundred and sixty employees at at yep. one point. I mean, what what was that like for you? Um, I mean, did you ever feel the weight of of, I have 160 people relying on me. What was that like as a CEO, um, you know, running a company and, and you've got people depending on you. And um, what what was that like for you to, to build a successful company like this and, and have that responsibility?
1: Well, it was, it was exciting.
0: It was um,
1: difficult. It Many times, very difficult. And as I told before, I didn't have any business experience, so I had to learn as I went and make um, mistakes and learn from them and make hard decisions, like selling the tents, which we all cried the day that the the, uh, agreement was signed. It was like a legacy, gone now from us. And the employees and I were all very close uh, we really worked together, and I, I ran my company with my values, which were trust and um, respect, and that if we had this in one another, we'd have a successful product. And so we all got together and we made our own mission statement, everybody together putting in their thoughts about what was important. And and we had what is now called a socially responsible company. Mm. But at at that time, there wasn't such a phrase or title. And people, uh, other businessmen that were here, there weren't any businesswomen would say, oh, yeah, Marilyn runs her tent like a. Uh, Mother Hen, she's, she's not uh, really very strong in, in her in, about her employees. But I never had, I had very little turnover. I had people wanting to come and work for us. And it was because they knew that the environment was full of this kind of trust and respect. And also, I really encouraged my employees to Improved themselves. I had a wellness. I set up a gym. I had I brought in a yoga instructor to help with uh, during breaks to really stretch and do that. I I worked on domestic abuse because a lot of my women and the Stitchers were victims of that. And we made a point of talking about it and educating everybody. And hopefully they were taking that home. and uh, it it was more of a family, even though it's 165. Uh, but it concerned me every single person, and I had that loyalty from them as a result. That's and amazing. I went, when I sold the company, that was the saddest thing. Was I missed the employees? I missed the the interaction we had.
0: Right. With- so, well, you sold you sold part of the business in '94 to the, the the outdoor business, and then you sold the was it the exhibit business in 2001? Yes. Mm.
1: And uh, at that time, I was hoping it would stay in Maine because it employed a number of people, and right. that's what we wanted to show that Maine could have a successful company. And um, the company that bought it bought it because of our culture and our company was very respectful of that and of me. And um, they paid 15 million for it. And my shareholders went away very happy. And a lot of my employees were because they stock company that I had given them. And um, I went away with money, (laughs) but it was sad. To, it really was sad to let it go. And when they kept it for five years and then they sold it, then the new buyer took it out West mid mid west. Right. So,
0: what, what, what's the name of the, did, did they keep the same name? Did they keep Moss?
1: It's still Moss and they do about 85 million now.
0: Wow. Wow.
1: And they own two, they bought several other companies up.
0: Oh, interesting. Um. I guess, as you reflect back on kind of the legacy of um, Moss, I, what, are, what are your thoughts and feelings? I mean, you, you have mentioned some of this, you know, the, you know, selling the company, the feelings that you had there, there in that, that family aspect. Um, but as you reflect on, on the influence of the company, um, it, you know, and all the impacts you and Bill had on, on the, on the industry and other industries, what, what are your thoughts there?
1: well i was I was very proud you know I really felt that we had worked hard and we did a good job and and I was very respectful of Bill's designs. Um, the marriage didn't work, <laughs> but uh, that's why I wanted to do the book and to give his legacy and his designs uh, something to live, to live on.
0: Right. Talk, talk a little bit about that process of, of the book, like when that all came together. And I mean, you mentioned that being a years, you know, uh, an endeavor that took years to put together uh, and all the primary documents that you have in there and photographs and sketches. It's, it's really, it's a beautiful book. And I've, I've loved looking at it um, over and over again. Um, But what was, what was the process of putting that together? That's, that was, Quite, quite the task.
1: Well, I was actually doing another book at that time, and Rico Eastman, who had worked for us and was a sculptor out in, now out in Santa Fe, um, he called me one day and he said, Marilyn, I got a phone call from a guy in New York who's an editor of the Fabric Architecture Magazine, and he wanted to interview me about Bill Moss because he's going to do a book on Bill Moss. Mm. and Rico said, he called me right away, and he said, uh, Marilyn, if anyone does this book on Bill Moss, it's got to be you. Mm. So you have everything. You know about it. You were with him 23 years. You've got to write the book. And so I sort of reluctantly started looking into it, and then I thought it was just going to be a small picture book, <laughs> and then it turned out to be this very heavy, heavy book <laughs> that, yes, exactly, way too heavy, way too big, uh, because I couldn't stop. You know, there were, there were so many interesting things that Bill had actually done and created, and I didn't want to uh, let any of that go
0: unknown. right. Well, again, I recommend anyone pick up the book and we'll include your website where you can, where you can purchase that, right? Okay. Um, I, I wanted to run through a couple quotes um, that are, I don't know if they're all attributed. Well, they're not attributed necessarily to Bill, but I think I, I found a few of these in the book that I thought were interesting, but maybe you can give some thoughts on each one. Okay. Labels are irrelevant. I'm assuming that's referring to, to Bill not wanting to be put into any one box.
1: That's right. I think he answered that one time when someone said, uh, well, you're an artist, you're a designer, you're a sculptor, what are you anyway? <laughs> that was one of his comments. It was in a newspaper interview or a magazine interview.
0: Right. Um, I, I like this one. Trying to get Bill Moss to work on and finish a project was as hard as trying to get an atheist to church.
1: Uh, that was a client, former client who had bought uh, an idea of Bill's and then Bill lost interest in it. And the guy didn't know how to take it on and manufacture it and produce it. So he lost some money.
0: Wow. Um, <laughs> wow. Uh, any other, I, I guess, uh, you know, some, there's some terms that are, are key. You mentioned a few of these throughout. There aren't any straight lines in nature, this idea of functional sculpture. I'm, I, you know, I, I don't know if this was conscious or not, but it seemed like you and bill coined some really interesting terms that have stuck. Um, that, that I think, um, is really interesting. Like if you're, if you're creating a new category, new terms, um, naturally come about when you're, when you're pioneering kind of a new space in the new category. So any, any others, I mean, some of those quotes or phrases or terminology that you feel like developed out of, out of this work. Um, god there probably are some and i they're all in the book that's for sure
1: (laughs) yes they're they're in the book they're in the book i i tried hard to put as much there as i as i
0: could um maybe maybe a change of pace but any we talked a little bit about some of the off the wall ideas um one that i saw was like nasa habitats right Mm -hmm. bill working on on things like that and um you know, that's the ultimate outdoor product, right. Um, making product for space, but, um, are there any other kind of of these moonshot, not, you know, pun intended moonshot type projects off the wall ideas that, um, that we haven't covered. I thought the NASA habitats was, was really interesting and kind of epitomizes this, you know, labels are irrelevant. You know, he didn't limit himself to, um, building tents for this earth. Um, Mm -hmm. what, what, any other, any others that kind of jump out to you?
1: I think I was was just thinking of one when you were saying that. Uh, Well, you know, it's also, it sort of goes back a little bit to his station wagon living. Mm. I mean, that was, that was a whole new concept that he came up with.
0: Yeah. Car camping.
1: Yeah. Car camping. Now I did find an old picture of an old Ford that called it car camping. And Mm. it had a, of fabric off of it and hanging just hanging down on the side but bill if you saw that picture in there his whole thing was that the tent would pop up on top and the kitchen would pop out here and he built this whole thing and a boat was underneath or on top of the tent and the boat came off and you put the boat in the water and you pop up the tent and you have your your cook stove and all your gear is right there and um That was one of his things. uh, That was way ahead of his time,
2: Mm
1: -hmm. anyways. uh, Well, his uh, his homeless shelters, right? Oh, and then disaster shelter, where it was a dome tent with the payload, you know, dropping it as a parachute into earthquake areas and places where uh, rescue groups couldn't get in. And we went to the Red Cross and everywhere trying to get that sold and no one would buy it. They'd they'd say things like, put a thousand of them on your shelf and we'll, when we have a disaster,
0: we'll come buy
1: them. (laughs) And we couldn't afford to do that.
0: Yeah. You can't wait wait around for a disaster to happen and have those on the shelf necessarily. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, that's interesting. Well, you know, this... I, uh, oh, and
1: remember the paper tents for the army and the special forces, too. Oh. And that was so they could, uh, they'd have light gear to take in with them. There was a special uh, special forces that was up in uh, Greenland, I think. And uh, he sold several of these. And they would take them in, on they'd be on skis. And then when they were ready to leave, they'd just burn the tent. Mm. And, you know, it was just a cheap an expensive tent and take the poles with him.
0: Right. Oh, that's interesting. I, I, you know, for, so for this and, and, and much more, I would recommend people get the book and, and read more because there's so much more. And, and I almost feel bad. We, we can't even do it justice, you know, in, in an hour's time, we, we really hit these points like from a really high level, but um but i thought it was important to just get your get your thoughts and your perspective and hear hear the stories from from your own mouth um i guess what maybe a parting thought what what do you think bill would think of his legacy or would he not think of legacy is he kind of one of those people that that is only thinking about you know the future what what would he think about his impacts on the industry
1: uh he had an ego <laughs> <laughs> yeah i'm sure he would he would really love to see that book mm. on his coffee table.
0: Yeah, yes. Right. Well, here it is. And it's done. Um, I, again, I recommend anyone pick it up. Um, how's the best way to stay in touch with you? Get the book. I know you've got your website. Um, do you mind sharing that with everyone?
1: Yeah. The um, the Bill Moss website is uh, BillMossTense.com. And my personal one is M-M, no, <laughs> sorry, <laughs> Marilyn M. Moss at Chawazi, and that's spelled C-H-A-W-Z-I, which I got in Africa from tribal right. chiefs, uh, dot M-E. So Will- it's Chawazi
0: dot Great. Well, we'll, we'll include those in the, in the description to this episode as well. Um, And in your personal website, I mean, people can keep up with, with things that you're working on today. We touched on this a little bit, but I want to make sure that we, we mention it as well. Like what, what are you working on today? You still are active doing a lot of writing. Um, What are, what are some things that you're excited about, you know, post Moss Tense life?
1: well i I just finished a memoir, and uh, it has a lot of the company in there, and Bill Moss and that too, but a lot of other as well, um, my upbringing, which was uh, you know, in poverty in the mountains of West Virginia, and how I ended up where I am and um, And I've written a number of articles on Bill and his design for magazines. There's a Spanish architectural magazine. And all of that is on my personal um, website and you can actually open them and read them. And what else? Oh, and I'm doing now a story on just Moss Tents. I mean, um, Moss Inc. The company itself, the employees, the culture that we created um, and it's called from barefoot to the boardroom
0: mm, that's great well you've got your hands full you're um, got a lot lot you're working on right now i I'm assuming that we'll we'll be in touch when when some of those things release and we'll make sure to share those with listeners as well and and whenever that releases, maybe we can do a part two and and talk talk a little bit more in depth about some of those topics as some of those those books and articles come out thank you. But Marilyn, this has been fun. Thank you for taking the time. I'm glad that we could make it work. Um, finally, we we pushed through storms and surgeries and um, everything else to make it happen, and I, I really appreciate it. It's been a fun conversation.
1: Well, thank you for your patience too. With a memory that's not as quick and fast as it used to be.
0: No, no, this was this I was great.
1: The, your program or your your project, I think it's fabulous.
0: Oh, thank you. Thanks for listening to the Highlander podcast for more conversations with outdoor industry leaders and enthusiasts, subscribe and listen wherever podcasts are found or on opdd.usu.edu slash podcast.